Well, if you um, happened to miss uh, my message last week, I'd really encourage you to go uh, back and, and give it a listen on the website if you could, uh, because in it I kind of laid some foundation for um, some of the things we're going to be talking about. We're going to be focusing on Romans uh, chapters 5 through 8 here in the next few months. Uh, but last week I, I kind of talked about some of the major themes of the beginning of the book, especially chapters 1 through 3, that I think would be real helpful for you to, to kind of have a grasp of. So if you missed it, go back and listen to it. But one of the facts that we discovered um, was that uh, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome about 57 A.D., which was about six years before the first gospel account of, of the life story of Jesus was written. And so these folks that are, that are way over in Rome, quite a ways from kind of the hub of the early Christian community in Jerusalem, um, they're a long way from that. They, they haven't had any eyewitnesses of Jesus' life come and visit them yet, nor do they have a written account of what Jesus did. And so Paul has an incredible burden we talked about last week to go and really give them some very sound teaching on exactly what the death and resurrection of Christ uh, means for them, what the implications of that, that story uh, was. So um, because of that, Romans is seen as one of kind of the weightiest uh, letters in the New Testament. Um, and it's just kind of chock full of some really deep uh, truths. Um, and one of the things that I want to just kind of encourage us all about, I've been a Christian now for um, like 28 years. And, you know, I've read Romans several times. Um, I know it's an upsetting, upsetting story, isn't it? Um, but here's the deal. Um, I think for some of us that have been a Christian a while, I think it's going to be really important for us to kind of commit ourselves to being willing to kind of hear this stuff with fresh, fresh ears. Because some of the things we're going to be going through today can seem really pretty elementary if you've been a follower of Christ for a while. But the key is that these things never get old. And, and in fact, the key is that a lot of times we have this information up here, but it hasn't traveled to here, and it definitely doesn't come out in the way that we live. So it's not so much about what you know, it's more about what you know and you've applied. And so maybe your goal could be to say, hey, maybe for the first time I'm going to take some of these things that I've quote-unquote known, and I'm going to really begin to live it. Um, so I, I hope that that would be your heart as we go into this. But one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith Paul kind of outlined in those early chapters, and that was this, is that we were justified or made right with God by our faith, not by our good deeds, not by, as we talked about, a lot of Jews in Jesus' time had tried to follow the letter of the law to perfection. That's not how we were made right with God. It's God's grace in sending his son Jesus to die, to conquer death, that, that really kind of opened a way for our relationship to be restored with him. We did nothing to make this happen. We didn't deserve it. And we are simply to receive it and to believe it and then to begin to live it out in our life as a way of, of showing gratitude for God, to God for his indescribable gift of grace he's given us. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Today it's page 783 in your pew Bibles. Romans chapter 5, page 783. If you look at that, the very first word in Romans chapter 5 is therefore. 
And so just as a little Bible study hint to you, anytime you come across that word, you need to ask, what's the therefore? Like what happened previous to this in order for him to be saying therefore? Paul kind of really kind of gives us the answer. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have been made right with God or justified by Christ's death for our sins on the cross. It's already been done. There's some promises that God gives us that we might not realize until we get to heaven. But the promise of, of us being made right with God is available now. It's a truth. It's a reality that we can claim right now. And Paul really is, is starting off by kind of getting at this issue of the security of our salvation. Okay, once we have made a commitment to surrender our life and follow Christ, immediately the enemy, Satan, is going to do everything that he can to try to fill our hearts and minds with doubt and fear and anxiety over, you know, our mistakes. And as soon as we screw up, um, man, he's, he's on us right there, that voice, you know. You're not worthy of God's love. <laughs> you really think he can forgive you for all those things you've done? And especially as a young follower, when you, when you, when you really for the first time kind of blow it, and you kind of thought, man, I thought I, was, I thought I was done with that way of living. I thought I was past that. I thought I was this new person. Why am I continuing to go back to do some of the same things I've done? And immediately Satan just grabs that and is like, yeah, you're right. You are pretty horrible. All right? How many of you have lived that experience, right, where you've had your salvation question? So young Christians, I want you guys to look around. If you're not raising your hand, you're not being honest, okay? Because it happens to everybody. And so I, I, wanna, I want you to be encouraged by that. I don't want you to be surprised when that happens. But Paul gives us this great image to help us kind of understand this battle that goes on in our mind. In a couple different places in the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, and then later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he uses this image. He talks about this helmet of salvation. And in Ephesians 6, he actually goes through, you guys that are aware of this, that he calls putting on the armor of God. And he talks about all these things as Christians are supposed to put on figuratively in order to combat the, the, the flaming arrows of the enemy that come at us at a daily basis. And so one of the first questions I think that we need to kind of wrestle with a little bit this morning is do we live our life like we're in a battle? Do we live our life like we're in a battle? And if you do, what, what does that look like for you? Like, does that mean, you know, just praying? Does it mean uh, praying for protection? Does it mean in the morning when you get up, you... You, you put your armor on. God says that the sword that we have is the word of God. Do we spend time in God's word so that we have swords, weapons against the enemy so we're not just taking a beating? Do we live like we're in a battle? Honestly, guys, a lot of days I forget that. And, and those are the days that I get my rear kicked all over the battlefield. Okay? But we are in a battle. And the helmet of salvation goes on our head <laughs> Because that's where the battle is in our mind. That's where the enemy tries to attack us, to fill us with doubt and anxiety about whether we've done enough to earn God's love. But our salvation is secure through Jesus' saving work and our faith in that reality. And, and Todd, I want you to go ahead and put this sentence up here. Obedience does not preserve our salvation, but rather it is evidence that we are saved. 
You understand the difference between those two things. Our salvation is not secure because we are obedient and because we do the right thing, but rather our obedience is evidence that we are saved. Okay. In these first five verses of chapter five we're gonna look out today, Paul gives us three benefits of our justification. The first is found in verse one, and that is this, is that we have peace with God, okay? Not like the eagle song. This is not about a peaceful, easy feeling. This is peace as a fact. It's a truth. And to fully appreciate that truth that we have peace with God, we first have to understand the truth that we all were enemies of God. Okay, before we entered into a relationship with Christ, if you've done that, our our previous state before then was one of hostility towards God, whether you felt like that was what you were doing or not. Paul reminds us that this is very true in, in the book of Romans, a couple verses that he has that kind of lay that out. Put those up there, Todd. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're probably pretty familiar with that one, Romans 3.23. Romans 8, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful man mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So even in the best version of you, before you came to Christ, was not pleasing to God. You are incapable of pleasing him as long as you are at odds with him. And we'll talk more about that reality. And the fact that we were hostile towards God through our disobedience is why there had to be a sacrifice. Jesus offering his life for us. We must understand that we were enemies of God. R.C. Sproul, writer, theologian, said this, Christ is a mediator to bring estranged parties together. And that's what we were. We were estranged from God. And Christ, through his work, brought us together. We are at war with God because he made a way, a very costly way, the, the, the death of his son he was willing to give for us on the cross, and daily people reject that. So I want you to, to put yourself in God's shoes, and, and those of you that have kids will probably really connect to this, and I want you to think about you know, having an only child, and you being willing to go and give that child to save the world, and then to have people reject that offer, and to mock that offer, and, and maybe the worst thing is just to be indifferent about it. Can you imagine the difficulty of, of making that choice to offer your child to forgive everyone and then to watch people kind of respond like that to that sacrifice? Can you imagine how heartbroken you would be? How angry you would be towards people's just kind of indifference for that? That was costly for you. The good news of the gospel is that through Christ's death and resurrection, we have peace with God. If we receive God's gifts of forgiveness through faith, then the hostilities have ended. So the great thing about these biblical truths is that they're true for all time. Okay, it's not like a peace treaty that, you know, we sign here on earth and then the new dictator comes in and he's got a different opinion, so he just throws that treaty out. Once we're made right with God, once we have peace with him, it lasts forever. So that's the good news. Let's look at verse 2. 
Verse 2 says, Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the second benefit of being made right with God through Jesus is that we've gained access into his grace or into his presence. Why is that such a big deal that we have access to God? Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Turn your Bibles there. Hold your finger there in Romans 5. Genesis chapter 3. In this chapter is where the fall of man happens, okay? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're in perfect communion and unity with God. And then they make a choice to be disobedient and to, to choose to, to eat from the tree with the knowledge of good and evil that God had told them not to. And so this is what happens as a result of that sin. I want you to look at, at verse 23. It says, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, which is like angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So mankind was banished from the garden, from the presence of God. And because of their disobedience. And God posted this angel and this flaming sword so they could not re-enter in there. And later on, as you read the Old Testament, you, you see that, that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And at one point, they take those Ten Commandments, the people of Israel, and they put them into this ark. This, you know, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, okay? So they put, them, they put those in this ark, and it's supposed to represent the presence of God. And the Israelites, when they would go out and battle and things, they would carry the ark and kind of keep it out in front of the army, God's presence with them. And then later on, they build this temple in Jerusalem, and they put this ark into what they called the Holy of Holies, which is kind of in the center of this. And it's a room that only one person was allowed to go into once a year. The high priest would, would be allowed to go in there to make a sin offering for the people of Israel and um, it's kind of funny, they had some stories about like where they would tie a rope to the dude's leg. <laughs> it's like if they, if they had a heart attack or something like that, they had bells on them so they would know if somebody's in trouble, you know, get them out. So, because you couldn't go in there and pull them out, all right? So, no one else in the world was allowed into the presence of God, except this one guy. So do you understand what a bold claim it is now for Paul to say that we have access to God? that now any time we can go to him, that's, that was revolutionary, okay? It doesn't seem like a big deal to us, <laughs> but it was. And surrounding this, this room was this really thick veil, this curtain. And the cool thing about that is, is in Matthew 27, when Jesus is on the cross and it says he gives up his spirit and dies, at that moment, it says, that curtain was torn from top to bottom by God. Basically telling people that that barrier between God and man is gone now. We have direct access to him. As one writer said, the flaming sword of the angel in the garden is doused by the blood of Christ. So, so far we've received the benefits of the peace of God, a peace with God, access to his presence, and now we're going to see how we have the hope of his glory. 
So let's look uh, back in chapter 5 at verses 3 and 4. It says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. I think these were the, the, were the verses uh, where Paul started kind of hitting the bottle a little too much, don't you? That's a joke, okay? Um, I'm going to see a show of hands. How many of you guys really, man, I just rejoice in my sufferings. Can I get a show of hands? I mean, man, when I'm suffering, I'm like, woo, yes. Three of you, I don't want to hang out with you at all, okay? Oh, I see some more hands, okay? It takes a lot of maturity to, to, to rejoice in our sufferings, you know? Um, that idea is con, kind of contrary to our human nature. Everything in us kind of fights that, right? Especially in our American culture. It's like, avoid pain at all costs. Pain is bad, right? And a lot of us, especially in the last couple of generations, we've grown up with things being pretty good all the time. Our grandparents, our great-grandparents, you know, might have lived through the Depression, you know, especially just two medical advances of just the health care that we have now, World War II, some of those things that people endured where they understood what real suffering was, what it meant to sacrifice and to give for the greater good. We've grown up, we pretty much just get what we want, do what we want, aren't really called on to sacrifice a whole lot. And so in our American culture now, we have this innate thing that, well, if something's going wrong, then, you know, we've we've got to figure out a way to get out of it. (laughs) How do I make things not bad for me anymore? And, And when we encounter trials, it leads to this just despair, this broken spirit of like, oh my gosh, I'm losing all hope. And we, it leads a lot of times to, you know, anger, all kinds of emotions, or people trying to escape, or to medicate, or anything they can do to numb the pain. I love that song we sang earlier, Center My Heart. You know, talk about how much it's so much easier just to fall asleep at night and just to run away instead of digging in and rowing through the storms of life with God. And we lose perspective of the opportunity before us that trials are necessary ingredient to growth and maturity in life. Necessary ingredient. I'm sure that most of us are familiar with the warnings that are in the New Testament from Jesus and from his followers. Many times it says, in this world there will be trouble. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. It's going to happen. Because if you are living life according to God's way, Most of the time, it's in total contradiction to the world's way. So there's some tension there. Something's got to give. There's going to be some difficulties, okay? But Paul promises this, that suffering for Christ produces something. There's a benefit. It produces something if we allow it to. We don't have to allow it to. We can kick and scream against it and just kind of not really want to learn something. One of the best quotes that I read this week in terms of giving me a mental image was this. Tribulations put muscles on our souls. I don't know about you, but my soul looks like a weakling sometimes, right? For some reason, the the image of, uh, who is that guy? Now I'm trying to think of it. All I can think of is the tequila song. You know, the little dude with the funny hair that flipped up in front. Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, my soul is like Pee Wee Herman. 
right? I need to put some muscles on that thing. That was random, people. I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm smoking on Saturday night, but wow. Paul says this. Get that image out of your mind. (laughs) Suffering produces perseverance. The ability to continue working in the face of obstacles. Jesus' brother James wrote this. He said, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And in, in another sermon, you know, not too long ago, I kind of asked this question, do we allow perseverance to finish its work? Or do we cheat the potential benefits by looking for the first, you know, the quickest way to relief that we can find? I wondered how many times in my life I've kind of short-circuited what God has wanted to do in me to make me more mature because I've just wanted the pain to be over. And so whatever gets the pain over is what I'm going to do because I don't want to suffer very long. Instead of hanging in there and saying, God, listen, I know this is difficult, but I want to grow and learn and be as mature as I can. <laughs> Help me do that. Perseverance, he says, produces character. Have you noticed that an easy life never produces character? It's why every great story that you read or you go to a movie to see has conflict, and it has a character that has to overcome something. And it's why we walk out of movies or we finish a book, and it's like, man, we get inspired, right? And it's like, man, I want to, I want to be able to overcome something like that character overcame. I want to have that kind of courage. I want to have that kind of perseverance, that kind of dedication and commitment to hang in there. And those stories inspire us. Finally, the progression from perseverance to character, it says, produces hope. Let's look at verse 5. It says, and hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. I think we have a severely poor concept of the word hope, or the concept of hope. Because most of the time when we use the word hope, it's kind of shrouded in this cloud of doubt. It's kind of a wish or a desire. Do you think your team will win the game this weekend? Oh, I don't know, but I sure hope so. Or, you know, I've got a son who's getting ready to go to college. Do you think your son's going to go to college and be able to handle that? Man, I hope so. (laughs) You know, maybe a tinge of doubt, who knows? In contrast, the hope that God offers us in Christ is a hope that does not disappoint. A hope with absolute assurance. I want you to turn over in Hebrews, uh, to Hebrews, to your right, page 831, Hebrews chapter 6. We're not coming back to Romans, so you can let that go. Hebrews chapter 6. You can see this under the certainty of God's promise is the heading there. Look down at verse 19. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Remember, we just talked about that, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. It says, he has become the high priest for us forever. And I love that image of hope being an anchor in our lives. On the surface, (laughs) above the water, you know, winds and waves might be battering our life. But underneath the surface, at the root of who we are, is this anchor that, that holds us secure in the midst of the storm. Jesus, our mediator, has entered into the presence of God and paid for our sin. And as a followers of Christ, that is what our hope is in. That through the tribulations that will surely come in this life, that we have this anchor in Jesus. And because our hope is secure... We can enter into any problem, any trouble in this world and say, Lord, teach me. Produce in me the things that you want to do. Produce in me perseverance. Produce in me character. Expand my ability to have hope so that I might display the glory of God in my life. Because see, if we don't have those things, we don't really display God's glory. We just prove how selfish and weak we are. And then at the end of verse 5 in Romans, it said this, God has sealed this hope in us by pouring out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that phrase, poured out there, uh, literally translated means lavishly, to the point of overflowing. God has poured his love for us into us. He's poured his love for us into us so that we will have this sense of understanding of how deeply loved we are, how far God was willing to go in order to save us. And that, that knowledge is the anchor in our lives. We can handle anything Anything in life with that knowledge that God's unfailing love for us is secure. Here's where the problem comes up, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. (laughs) But wouldn't you agree that the reason that we fret and have anxiety and fear in life is because we feel like we need something more than God's forgiveness and grace and love in our life? It's kind of like we think, well, yeah, that's, that's good. But God, could you also do this and then I'll be okay? And we've talked about this before. It's the Jesus and syndrome. Well, yeah, I've got Jesus, but I'd also really like to have fill in the blank, a life free of trouble, <laughs> a job that pays the bills with no problem, kids that are completely healthy, a marriage that is awesome, you know, whatever. Fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. For me, for a long time, it was security. You know, having grown up in in just kind of a a little bit of a chaotic growing, you know, phase of just moving around a lot and divorce and those kinds of things, what I thought would make me happy was having security. You know, for my kids to grow up in the same house, in the same town, and for me to have the same job until I died, you know, that I, I was going to control everything and orchestrate everything to produce what I thought was going to make me happy. And, and I wasn't secure in God's love for me. 
that no matter where I was, no matter where my kids moved, no matter what we did, that we had that, we're okay. That's the anchor, <laughs> not my ability to control things, not life turning out the way I thought it had to go. And this whole discussion in chapter 5 began with a reminder that our salvation is secure, that we have been justified by faith. And I've been reading through this book by R.C. Sproul about Romans, and this is what he said about these five verses. He says, says, salvation is not like receiving just one gift under the Christmas tree, but gift after gift all wrapped up together. The first package we find is our justification. And when we open that package, we find inside it another peace with God. Inside that package is access into his presence. And inside that gift is the ability to rejoice in glorifying the glory of God. Inside that package, we find there is joy in the midst of tribulation, and that very tribulation gives us another gift, perseverance. Tear off the ribbon from that gift, and there is another one, which is the character that perseverance gives us. And within that gift is hope that will never embarrass or disappoint us. Finally, we open one more present, and it is the love of God poured profusely into our hearts by the grace of God. All these are the gift of our justification. For Paul, Christmas never ends. And I'm convinced, and I've said it before, that right living and right loving follows right thinking. Do we understand the depth of what's been offered us in Christ? The answer is no, we don't. But our desire has to be that we would know that, that we would long to know how deep and wide is the love of Christ. I want to have a heart like Paul's, who in another letter he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 10, he said this. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. I want to know Christ. I want to understand the weight of it all. The peace that I have with God. The access to God. The hope that I have in Christ, which is like an anchor in my soul. Because here's the deal. When I understand those truths at some level, it changes my perspective on everything. I see God for who he really is. I see myself for who he says I am. It changes my perspective on the trials and the tests that I'm going through in life so that I have hope in the midst of them all. Guys, remember, this book that we're going through, Romans, is heady. (laughs) Heady. We're talking about a lot of just really deep theological truths, but the key, again, is that we have to allow it to sink in from our head to our heart and then out into the way we live. And so the most important question that we need to ask as we leave here today is this, is because these things are true, because I have peace with God, because I have access to his presence, because I have hope like an anchor in my soul, how will I live now? How will that impact the way that I live today and tomorrow and the next day? That's the only thing that really matters. We've got to get the thinking right first, but then action needs to follow that. I want you to take out your programs. If you've got something you can write on there, or a piece of paper. 
grab a pen, I want you to write this. Because these things are true, because these things are true, I will what? Fill in the blank. Because these things are true, I will. Because I have peace with God, because I have access to God, because I have hope that's secure because of his unfailing love for me. What will you do today, tomorrow, the next day, because those things are true? Take a minute, think about that. Write something down. One thing I've learned is that there are these people called slow processors. I'm not really familiar with that term, but I understand there's people like that have to think about things before they just start that. You might be one of those people, um, so you might need some time to allow this to kind of soak in. Some of us are like, man, God's speaking to me. I already know what he said. I'm ready to go. So Anybody would like to share kind of what they wrote down? I will do what? Because I think the answer is going to be all over the map. God speaks to us in so many different ways. Anybody want to share what they will do because of these things? Yeah. Okay, because these things are true, I will worship the Lord. What else? Yeah. Okay, I will live for God and not myself. Anybody else? Yeah. Because these things are two, I will trust him and not in my own ability. Yeah. Or the things of this world. What else? Yes. I will be... Okay. I will be led out of the darkness into the light. Yeah. What else? Yeah, Robert? Okay, why? What part of that truth spurred that answer? Uh huh. <laughs> he said, I will try to, to relate to people that I might not normally relate to. Yeah. Good. So because I have this hope as an anchor, God's love for me is never changing. I don't have to fear how people might respond to me, whether they'll accept me, you know, because I'm secure. And so I don't have insecurities when I go and I'm around people worried about what they're going to think about me. That's great. It's a great applicable lesson. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Randy? Because these things are true, I will follow the path that is burning in front of me. Okay. Because these things are true, I will follow the path that's burning in front of me. Yeah. Yes. 
okay? Because these things are true, I must understand them more, okay? For me, um, man, I am a, I'm a, I'm an avoider. When I come up against trials and tests in, in life, I'm a put my head in the sand guy. You know what I mean? I don't want to hear, uh, you know, maybe it'll just go away. All right? Anybody out there? Anybody? Anybody? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. So my goal is that because these things are true, because I know that I can endure anything and learn from it, that it's God's trying to produce something in me through that suffering, I need to get my head up and I need to face it without fear and, um, and learn from things instead of just wanting to avoid difficult things. Okay? I don't know what it is for you, but guys, these are the kinds of exercises that we're going to need to do in this book. Very practical. Because this is true, then I will what? Okay? And I would really encourage you guys, as you spend time with God this week, hopefully you do that, and, and you're in the Word, I would go back and reread this, Romans 1 through 5, chapter 5, 1 through 5 again. There's a lot there. Just kind of let it soak in. Maybe think about Maybe some things that I don't really, haven't been really living out or maybe I didn't know were true. And let God continue to speak to you as the week goes on. Uh, we're going to get ready to head into communion time. So I'm going to pray for us and just give us some time of silence. Uh, in a few minutes, uh, ushers will dismiss you. You can come forward and tear off the bread and dip it into the cup. And uh, take it and eat it and head back to your seat. What's that? Hey, there is no communion. So... <laughs> Hey, I was praying for the Lord to provide. <laughs> Those of you that just looked over and said, Bob, there's no bread. Ye of little faith. <laughs> Justin is on his way to Kovacs right now. No, I'm just kidding. We will not do that. Thanks for the heads up. That would have been awkward. All right. Did we do it last week? No. Okay. So this should be the week, right? Oh, it's a fifth Sunday. Cursed fifth Sunday. Okay, anyways, here we go. Lord, thank you um, just for, man, these, these truths that um, are really deep. And, um, you know, I think, too, it's hard for us to get into the mindset of a first century Jew who was hearing things from Jesus and from Paul that were just so radically different from what they'd experienced. To hear that you could have presence and, and access to God's presence whenever you wanted to enter into it, that was just so crazy to consider. And so, Lord, I think sometimes because of where we are and, and what our life is here and our experience, these things just don't sound that revolutionary. <laughs> but they are, Lord. What's revolutionary is to take these things and really begin to live by them. The idea itself might not be revolutionary to us, but living them out is. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever we put down or maybe that you continue to speak to us this week about, about what we will do because these things are true, Lord, that we would really see fruit from that. That the next time that we experience a trial and a test, that we would think, ah, now I remember, Paul said that, that suffering produces things in me, so I need to stick with this. I need to lean into it. So God, I pray that we would begin to change because of these truths. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for the power that it has. And Lord, I pray that we might just pray, Lord, that I want to know you. I want to know Christ. 
I want to know the depth and the weight of all of this at a deeper level maybe than I've allowed it to hit me at this point in my life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.